everyone. This is Vahid from the Pulse Podcast. And today I'm excited to have Dr. John Bloom from Photometrics on our show. John is the co-founder and CEO of Photometrics, whose mission is to improve patient lives through early detection and prevention of diabetic foot ulcers. They are a virtual care management company dedicated to preventing diabetic amputations through their SmartMath product and through partnerships with both payers and at-risk providers, including the Veterans Health Administration. The company was founded in 2011 and has been backed by Norwich Ventures, Rock Health, Scientific Health Development, and Polaris Partners. Hope you enjoy this episode. So we do have a tradition of opening up the podcast by asking all our guests the same icebreaker, and that is, what do you want to be when you grow up? Right. Well, <laughs> not necessarily one of the main professions, but I was convinced to be a, a punk rock drummer. That was the big thing. When I actually had some hair, I wasn't any good at being a punk. I can already tell. I, I tried to spike my hair. I was like, yeah, it was... But that was it. I was, you know, on my way, I was doing shows and I, it was just, uh, it was an interesting scene to be a part of. I'm glad that I somehow got back into uh, learning how to do chemistry and such. Nice. And are you still a drummer or I was a drummer in a past life. That's why I'm wondering. I love this. Well, yeah, I feel like <laughs> then the answer is once a drummer, you're, I mean, it's always inside of you. you it, as evidenced by everyone in the office being, you know, when we were in the office, complaining that I'm hammering on the desks and on okay. the walls pretty much at all times. <laughs> Can't get rid of that part of it. I was going to actually ask you about that because it drives people <laughs> insane around me, constantly tapping. When I hear music, I'm mostly listening to the beat and just like playing along to that as opposed to the lyrics, uh, which Same. drives people crazy again. I actually, I don't think I can even hear lyrics. I just hear bass lines and drums. For whatever reason, that's how the, my brain is built. I'm shocked we haven't connected this earlier. No. I mean, this, this is huge. We can probably talk <laughs> the entire podcast about our drumming habits. <laughs> All right, so maybe we'll transition and actually talk about your company, Podometrics, a well-known player in the Boston digital health scene, as well as more broadly. And before we dive into exactly all the decisions the company has made and the model at a high level, I'd be interested in just hearing a little bit more about the origins. So for our listeners, can you just provide some background on, first, the core problem that Podometrics is trying to tackle and what inspired you to go after this problem? Yeah. So first, diabetes, an enormous problem. No huge surprise there. But what, what isn't appreciated by most is that a massive part of the morbidity, mortality, and cost is from the diabetic foot. When a patient has had diabetes for a, usually for a long period of time, the foot can be a major source of all three of those bad outcomes. A single amputation can cost as much as $100,000. If you get an amputation, your fibromortality mortality can be greater than 50%, sometimes even higher than that. It takes your independence. It takes enormous amount of resources to care for this patient. It is a, a dreaded complication, probably one of the biggest complications in healthcare that most people don't know is out there for us. So it's, it's an, an important problem that we had to solve it. We needed it to go away. And you know, what first drew your attention towards this problem? Well, certainly when you're a medical student, you first start to, I remember being in the ER and there was a patient that came in and, you know, as soon as the patient wheeled in, we all smelled pseudomonas. That has a very particular scent to it. And we all could recognize within the moment that this, this woman was going to likely lose both of her limbs and was probably on her way to becoming septic. It was such a crazy thing. And, and she hadn't, that's not what brought her there. It's this often this thing that it's not, you're not always aware when this has happened. Then fast forward, I would be an anesthesiologist and I would often spend whole days in the operating room doing nothing but amputations. And I'd 
forgive me, this is the language I used back then, is I kept thinking this is like barbaric civil war medicine, where you're still like, if it's disease, you cut it off. How can we still in today's age see a complication like that, especially when it's largely preventable? Even something as, as easy as laying off your feet for a short period of time can stop this whole cascade before it's this terrible wound, before you have to see me and the surgeon in the operating room. That was my first exposure. And then you, yeah. you just start digging, you realize how big it is. Now, can you just like walk me a little bit through then how you came to thinking about the solution? So for our audience, Podometrics, their main product is the smart math technology. And personally, when I'm thinking about something like foot amputations, my immediate reaction wouldn't be, oh, let's make basically a scale of sorts to better track people. So yeah, what was the inspiration behind the technology that solves this? And how do you go ahead with that and start to develop that into a full company? Well, certainly I think with any, it doesn't matter whether it's diabetic foot or heart failure or any other big problem, it really helps to try to get as specific as you can as what's the problem in this problem? Like what, what needs to be addressed here? And what we focused on was this engagement piece. Here's a patient who's often overwhelmed, almost universally overwhelmed by the care that they have. If you're a patient who suffers from diabetic foot complications, you typically have bad heart disease, lung disease, bad kidney disease, and they're just overwhelmed. So we had to figure out some way to solve that piece of it. And if we could solve that piece of it, we recognize we could have a good chance of preventing these complications. So the MAT form factor, we'd spend a lot of time with these patients. That one had the best reproducible adherence. And we tried, we tried to go for other sexier, maybe we had shoes and insoles and socks and anything else. We get the data and it just kept coming back to this mat. So simple. You step on it for 20 seconds a day. You know, once you have this idea, of course, you have to then build the company around it. It's not just a, a product. We had to figure out, which we're happy to get into, like what's its place in the healthcare system? Who would pay for this? Our patient is actually typically, you know, financially challenged. The social determinants of health are very real here. They may not have a job or regular access to food or transportation. So we had to make it as easy and as inexpensive as possible. For us, we wanted to have no expense to the patient for it to be something that could solve this, this challenge. For sure. And I do want to talk a lot about those decisions and the model there. Before I do, could you just shed a little bit more light maybe on how this technology works? I think our listeners would be interested in understanding how is it exactly that, what is the data you're collecting through this mat, and how is that then later translated into clinical decisions? The first part of it, product and how it works for the patient experience, it's wireless and cordless. It has basically cellular inside of it. You don't need a smartphone. You don't need Wi-Fi. That's critical because there was a recent paper that came out. 41% of Medicare beneficiaries lacked access to a, a mobile phone, smartphone, or a computer. So I think you want to make it as relevant to that patient population as possible. It needed to come out of the box. You step on it for 20 seconds a day and then go on with the rest of your life. There's nothing else to do with it. But in that interaction, it, we're recording are the temperature values across the entire surface of the foot, which actually gives us a significant amount of insight into what's going on in the entire foot. And we're looking for this inflammatory signal that's suggesting the tissue is starting to break down and developing into this wound. When we see that, the second part of how it works is we have a nursing team that can take these data and then work with their clinician to make sure that we're doing the right things for this patient. So this team then is coordinating with the patient's own physician, right? So it's not like... That's right. Okay, that's interesting. And something else that I just kind of thinking about. So this was back in 2011 when the company was first founded. Is that right? 
That's correct. Yeah. Very end of 11, but yeah. Yeah. So just kind of thinking about the time, you know, today, you know, digital health is older age and at home monitoring is older age. At the time, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think the same type of ecosystem and even enthusiasm maybe exists around these types of technologies. So no. what excited <laughs> you about this being an approach and like, frankly, how did you have the confidence to <laughs> go forward with it? Well, yeah, no, I just remember in the beginning, like here's a company that they have hardware, software, and services. Like no one could figure out how to wrap their head around that kind of risk. There were a few, like I think Lavongo had come up recently, but they're also in early stages. The idea of selling to a payer directly, but not using a reimbursement code, like this was all heresy to almost every investor out there. So it was like, probably gave everyone hives that was there, but we didn't really know any better. Here's a problem. We had to solve it. We needed these components. It was almost blind ignorance that compels you to jump in and just do it. And fortunately, we found the investors we needed. We found the right team. The science started proving out. It all worked well, but you just kind of had to throw yourself at the problem and, and to some extent, just kind of know that it's going to work out in the end. And how you went about convincing, for lack of a better word, skeptics. At the time, you had a care team, you had a technology, a backend, presumably, to kind of manage this data. So how did you convince people that this really is the approach of the future to be integrating these different parts? We did something that often you're recommended not to do, although I I think it worked out okay for us, which was a VC is going to want to sometimes talk to potential customers. Entrepreneurs like, we're frightened. Don't muck this up for us. We're talking to these people. These are delicate relationships. But we had a couple that were comfortable to talk about it. We connected them and basically it was validated. What they were able to say is, yeah, if they build this and it does this and this, we would absolutely buy it. This is a very meaningful thing. It was so validating. You know, when the customer validates that this is a problem and we're willing to pay for it, that was all the right signal we needed to get to our early investors to say, okay, wow, this is a little bit crazy, this idea, but this could have some real wheels to it. So let's talk more about the customers then. Within chronic care broadly, we've seen a variety of different models, right? So you have those that are going to be going right to the payers, working with self-insured employers, health systems. We've even seen a lot of DTC activity as well. Can you maybe walk me through how you were thinking about these different potential customer segments and ultimately how you thought about that strategy for Podometrics? A lot of it is you start to recognize, here's another challenge that we had. We were a prevention company and the classic mantra was prevention doesn't pay. It's a fee-for-service system. You get paid for procedure for treatment, not for prevention. So we knew this. Of course, you have to have prevention. Why wouldn't we have something of prevention? We had to figure out a way to make it work. Maybe you have the patient pay for it, but our patient was financially challenged fairly broadly. Like That was not necessarily a way to get a sustainable critical value to them. Well, how about the doc? And the doc is like, well, look, I get paid to take care of some of these things. Like, it doesn't quite work out. And we went to the hospital and they're like, well, John, you realize we're the ones who care for them when they come to the ER or the hospital. That's their role in the healthcare system. Like, you see, recognize it doesn't work there. And that ultimately led us then to the payer where they have a nice clean value proposition. We save you know, $100,000 amputation. That's significant ROI to them. And that was the, once we started to recognize that really that was our only place in the universe back then 10 years ago, that we really built that to be on our channel. Nice. And kind of like fast forwarding to today, have you been looking at many other approaches as well to work with customers? So just kind of thinking self-insured employers are now starting to appreciate value a little bit more. Even health systems are starting to appreciate value-based care a little bit more, finally. So (laughs) just wondering if now you're seeing a shift in me receptivity and if that's meant anything different for your business. Yeah. The idea now of seeking out prevention it has a place now. It 
10 years ago. ACOs were already there 10 years ago, but they were still figuring out their math. And most of them weren't making it. They weren't cutting it. They're starting to figure out how to do that right now. And now we've seen a number of wonderfully successful ACOs. And, and I think that, that having them to figure out kind of how to make it work has allowed for a whole batch of companies who could do prevention to flourish. Definitely. One of the customers that I do want to talk about, this is kind of thing about health systems, is the VA. So the company's been very public about working with the VA and your partnership with the VA. And before we dive into what that partnership entails, just for our listeners and for myself, can you give me a little bit of insight into how the VA actually works? Like, how is working with the VA maybe a little bit different than working with some other provider systems? Yeah, a couple of the big ones. It's the nation's largest integrated delivery network. You have the provider and the payer, which really aligns a lot of incentives Things like prevention are a no-brainer there. Why wouldn't they do that? They're not getting paid for procedures or, you know, that's not how they operate. They're looking for better care, better value. That's such a unique environment, which makes companies like ours a prevention play. It gives us a real early home, especially when the healthcare system was kind of figuring that out. Largely a provider-led organization. If the clinicians really, really want it, see the value, the data is there they're going to try to push to get it in. And that's they have a remarkable voice in that healthcare system. And that may or may not always be the case in a lot of other places. It's extremely mission-driven. They know how to care for the veteran who often has extra unique things that they need to care for. They know how to do it better than anyone else. It's, it's an amazing organization. There's also things that'll make you potentially pull your hair out. It's in a bureaucracy. It has those parts of it. But it, it has been a remarkable place to really begin our commercial journey. And kind of circling back on that very last point you mentioned around the unique needs of veterans, can you speak to what some of those needs are? So obviously, I think your company is addressing one of those needs, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. But you know, for listeners who might be interested in working with the VA, if you have any insight on what some of those needs are, I think that'd be really interesting. Well, certainly we see greater amounts of chronic conditions. We see higher rates of diabetes. Almost, I think it's one in four veterans has diabetes, and that includes the entire population they care for, that's a very high rate. And if you are a patient with diabetes, you have much greater likelihood of getting wounds, amputations. It just has to do with a number of things, greater rates of smoking, a number of things that happen, you know, just some of the stresses of even being in the military and being in combat, it, it, it can affect uh, patients. My, my dad was a veteran of Vietnam War. You know, I got to see that firsthand. And I guess it, it built into me uh, an empathy for the veterans. That's another part too, like a, to be a chance to help the, these veterans out who are often, I, by the way, I didn't make this statement up, but often you'll hear, we taught them fitness, not health. Back in like Vietnam War, we, we taught them how to be fit. And then we got them out of the military. We didn't necessarily give them the, the tools or the education on how to be healthy. It was a different set of goals. And now we get the chance to really care for these people. You know, they, I think they kind of fell out of the healthcare system in, in some ways. No, I appreciate that. And now I guess thinking a little bit more about how you're specifically working with this organization, what is the nature of the partnership with the VA? Can you may speak to how you've been able to work with them to your technology in those patients' hands, but also kind of develop that partnership over a long period of time? It started as a clinical trial. A number uh-huh. of VA medical centers, we weren't yet cleared by the FDA. We had an early tech and we did our, it was our first big paper too. It was a seven center trial. The data showed there is we could detect 97% of these wounds 
a little over five weeks before they happened, 37 days on average. We had our first really high engagement or adherence data out of it. And that was because of the work of these clinicians working with these patients. It was an ability to get into these clinics. And then how do they operate? It had a profound impact. We could talk about too, like a profound impact on us and how we operated. That was the beginning of it. And then once you really work with those clinicians, the hope for any company is that they will then want to use it. And we were fortunate. They became huge champions of technology. They saw firsthand what it could do. And that allowed us to get a chance to start to commercialize in the VA. And it was, it has evolved now that we're committing. We want to end amputations in the VA. There's now an initiative to end diabetic limb loss. The fact that we have the technology to do so and the means to get it out is a wonderful opportunity for us to live our mission with a firm, with an organization that is equally committed to the same goal. It's, it's an amazing place. Definitely thinking about um, your earlier points around the needs for this population and the higher diabetes, it can very clearly see massive impacts happening, especially on the scale that the VA has you know, across the country. When you talk to, say, like even investors, I'm wondering if their reaction when you say you're working with the VA is, oh, wow, massive opportunity, or if you have to convince them, maybe walk them through what it really looks like. So I think this will be especially helpful for anyone who's listening, who is potentially interested in working with the VA and also interested in getting <laughs> venture funding. What are those conversations like? And can you maybe tell me how venture capital thinks about the opportunity within the VA? I've been slowly smiling and there's been an occasional silent chuckle as you've been saying the <laughs> question. Because it, you know, I, I feel like every investor has been burned in the VA. They all have that story and they're all going to bring it up. As soon as we talk about the VA, like, oh, well, let me tell you about this company. And that was a challenge. And it's still today, like, oh, VA, wow, why, why are you going to the VA? And because to them, they have that skeleton, that one story, maybe a few that they went to the VA stubbornly and it's just tough. The VA is tough unless you can really, like the key there is that grassroots clinician support. And if you don't have it, there is no shortcut into the VA. There is no magic pathway. So today now we have, we have numbers, we have, we have sales, we have, we have patients, and it changes it once you can show that you actually can operate there and, do, and have clinical that's even better than some of the published literature we have out there. I think that they, you know, they, they need to see that, and hopefully there'll be more examples like us. That we're not necessarily a perfect, you know, a unique butterfly that's out there. There's a bunch of success stories. We just need more marketing on the company's successes in the VA because I think the VCs are still, still sour on that last VA deal. And you mentioned the idea of grassroots support. I'm wondering for people who are completely unfamiliar with the VA and even maybe have less experience uh, working with veterans, what are some things that are good to keep in mind when trying to develop that type of support within an organization like that? Well, I think the VA is still a big behemoth organization. And I think a lot of startups will come into the VA and then just, they're not necessarily willing to change their model to the VA. They're going to say, here's my product. Here's what we do. And they often bump into roadblocks or challenges. And I think they're not necessarily going to turn on a dime. And I think that was really huge for us is once we got in, like, how are we going to operate here? How do we going to communicate with the docs? You know, we had to completely adapt us to them, but that was huge. Like being so plastic, we could figure out what does it need? How does it need to operate here? We built exactly what was needed. And that has allowed us to move much quicker. I, I think that's a huge piece of wisdom I would give to anyone trying to work in the VA is, is not to make the assumption that uh, your system's going to look the same on the other side. Yeah, no, definitely super helpful. Um, I do want to shift gears a little bit and just kind of think about the chronic care space a little bit more broadly and maybe how it's evolving. So if we think about chronic 
conditions, especially diabetes, it's been a huge focus of digital health companies. I think we're finally starting to see that there are digital tools and even just kind of more old school, just care methods that you could apply to populations to ensure that their chronic conditions are being managed, both effectively, but also in a cost-effective way. One challenge I've seen is, especially for self-funded employers or any entity that's trying to make sense of the space and add on services that could be valuable to patients is keeping track of all these different offers and figuring out when someone might need to sign up uh, for um, you know, various solutions that might be out there. So I want to ask, you know, what are your thoughts on this? So what are your thoughts on the rapid growth of chronic conditions? And do you foresee the number of solutions out there being a solution management problem, if you will? I mean, more and more startups center the scene every every day. So it's going to continue to amplify. I think hopefully we're going to see the ones that have efficacy and savings continue to come to the top, which will help at least manage it. But I want to validate that. I think that that's going to increase. It's going to increasingly be a challenge. There's just so much that is out there. And many of these companies don't yet have the data set to necessarily you know show their position in, in care. I think diabetes is a massive problem. I think if you look at the Omadas, the Lobongos, and us, we've needed large clinical trials. For us, we probably spent six years in clinical trials to make sure that we had the data to do it, justify an ROI that is allows for easy. Now it makes sense, like a big problem, clean ROI. But without that, it's going to be a challenge for the company. And until that happens, it's going to be potentially overwhelming to some of the employers or payers as they're trying to sift which ones can have the biggest impact. Yeah. And you want to show, say, self-insured employers or payers, here's the ROI from our product. Here's why it's valuable. But you also kind of start running into a chicken and egg problem where you need signups to generate that data. And then you <laughs> can't really generate that data without those signups. So any thoughts or advice entrepreneurs who are thinking about this space and trying to think about how do I get that first customer? Well, first, I didn't want to say it was Bill of Bill and Ted's excellent adventure who said, you can't have a righteous video until you have Eddie Van Halen as your lead guitarist, but you can't have Eddie Van Halen as your lead guitarist until you have a righteous video, right? There's the, there it is. He nails the chicken and egg yep. so perfectly. And I think it's so prevalent. And like, where do you start that you need data? So for us, it wasn't necessarily Eddie Van Halen, but we ended up donating devices in the beginning. Let's just make the clinical trial as easy as possible. Let's get the data. And I look, I'm a clinician. So I wanted a lot of clinical data. I wanted multiple studies, but I think that ended up helping us. The more data we built up, and then we really came to the market with a quantified value proposition. That was a big piece of us. But uh, yeah, the chicken leg is totally real. Trying to figure out what are those populations that need the service or product I have that maybe we could at least initially try to uh, provide that for free and kind of go from there. I, um, I wonder if I would ever get credit in medical school to bring up a Bill and Ted quote. I wonder if that's a secret for <laughs> well, what, what I also appreciate was like, I definitely heard that allusion to <laughs> those rock bands, right? <laughs> Trying to <laughs> bring back that drummer mentality there. So just kind of thinking about this again. So, you know, obviously one solution is like, let's generate data. And by generating data and showing that this really is effective, we can maybe get that customer. What are your thoughts on consolidation though? So one other avenue I potentially see happening is, okay, there are, a million different solutions for, let's say, even diabetes. Why don't we may partner with a company that's already working in that space to have a more complete package or, say, a bundle of sorts? Do you see this 
evolving, these bundle solutions evolving into the future? And do you think this is a potential strategy for companies that are trying to get into a chronic condition space? Yeah, I do. I would say the arms race is on. What happened in another trend, a uh, big merger, Doctor on Demand and Grand Rounds that was with yeah. this week. And now you have all these big gorillas now in this space. You add an Optum, Teladoc, there's Amwell out there. The Armist is, is on. They're going to be looking now what makes their offering unique to either employers, the health plans. And I think you know working with them to get to them, I, I think it's going to, we're just seeing so much consolidation, even at that higher level, that I, I think that that's going to continue. I think they're almost pushing the market that way. Yeah. And just kind of thinking about consolidation from a business model standpoint as well. I'm wondering in situations where, let's say you're a DTC startup, but there are really good product or service synergies with a company that might be selling to self-insured employers. Do you think that when, say, a startup is thinking about these potential partnerships, they should be thinking as well about how we balance the different offerings with the multitude of different business models that we're seeing within the space? Well, certainly in that case, you almost view them as a distributor. You know, here they're a middleman partner that you could sell to, and then they can get, if they already have access to all these pairs, you sort of instantly inherit their commercial footprint. And you know that's almost like an inefficiency play. You now don't need the sales force to go knock on all those doors. You inherit that with that deal. You know They're going to probably charge you for it. That's a piece of what their business model is in, in doing the offering. But I think it's becoming more and more viable for a lot of the, especially DTC. Maybe you don't even have an infrastructure to have that plug in. Maybe it's a point solution narrow enough that it does it really make sense as a perfect solution or combined with a few other things, now we start to offer a, a full package to, to this offering. I, I think that could be more and more viable just depending on the what you offer and your thoughts on how you actually want to commercialize to get to these customers. Yeah, that's interesting too. So in a sense, what you're pointing to is not only the bundling of products, making a much better service for the end user, the patients, but also kind of thinking about bundling as almost like a way of getting into a new channel, right? If your product has been historically DTC, but there's a company that you have great product synergy with that is already working with payers, well, now you're in the payers front door as well. You almost can like upgrade you from a DTC to a value-based play by being incorporated into a number of things that can take risk or it's an interesting way to get new value propositions out of your, your tech. Yeah, for sure. We've talked about different models and we've talked about ways that the chronic care space is evolving. One question I have is just kind of thinking about the timing of chronic care in a patient's journey. There's obviously a point where some patients might be diagnosed with, say, diabetes or diagnosed with something else. But then there is something around being able to get ahead of these conditions early, right? So you don't even have to deal with those issues. So from first to put a metric standpoint, then think about chronic care more broadly. When should people be thinking about solution like years, you know, the smart math technology, like when is the optimal point to be weaving in some of these services and products to get ahead of potential issues down the line? Maybe I'll offer sort of broadly the thought and then what it meant for us. But to me, now that prevention is becoming viable, why are you waiting any minute for it? It offers the opportunity to not only have better outcomes, but significantly better costs and, and value for the healthcare system. So I think now that these are becoming available, it's as early as it makes sense. You also want to make sure that you're being helpful to the healthcare system, you're being cost-effective. So for us, by the way, you know, we're really working with the patients who are fairly complex. 
They've typically already had one wound before. We're going to try to keep them out of having another one. Their, their likelihood of having another one in that next 12 months is 40%, almost a coin flip to have another terribly expensive and potentially life-threatening complication. So really, as soon as you know that they're in that category, you cannot go to any earlier. You, you would want to get them monitored because every moment that you're not monitoring them is another moment that they might suffer from a wound that can lead to loss of limb and, and loss of life. So I think that's the thing is now that prevention has a viable business model in the healthcare system, you should not delay on that. It's the sooner the better to get the benefit of the system. For sure. And you know, I'm wondering that if there's like an opportunity to kind of incorporate the features of your technology into more products. I think some of the advantages, companies like ours, and we own a lot of that vertical, which allows us to keep an eye on the quality of care we do. We have the nursing staff. Certainly, we're seeing new technologies, which is getting digital to patients much earlier in disease progression. You know, I think for systems like ours, we're becoming, we have an enormous amount of data and really understanding what's happening to these patients. Now, for us, our real expertise are these complex patients. So for systems like ours, we might want to go earlier, but our real intelligence is not only what's happening in these patients, but how to really work with patients that are overwhelmed by their care, who have challenges with social determinants of health, with a number of these things. I think we're going to start to see that in a number of these technologies moving earlier. Uh, for us, though, we, we're going to remain very focused on this um, complex patient, these underserved populations, because it's where our heart lies and it is what we're finding we're really good at. That's awesome. So in the last few minutes, I did want to just kind of talk about you and your personal leadership. One thing that's been top of mind for me, and I'm sure many people, is how COVID had an impact on just starting a company during this time. So <laughs> your, your company wasn't started during COVID, but you've had to be a leader during COVID. I was wondering if you have any advice to entrepreneurs who are thinking about, say, starting their company in the next year during these COVID times. What are some of the leadership considerations they should be thinking about? Well, certainly there's more access to capital now, I felt like, than there was pre-COVID. I, that's real. Funding and we're seeing an explosion in investment. So in some ways, and we think about the mission has never been greater. Here we have a chance to really leverage digital, to get care to people we didn't normally used to get it to, or where, where they want to consume it in the home or wherever it is. What an amazing time to be an entrepreneur and to build up a company. At the same time, you know, this idea that, at least for today, the office culture isn't there anymore, right? We're not in the office. Yeah. So I've been blown away. We moved to a virtual model. And you know, I think pre-COVID, I thought that was crazy. No, we didn't skip a beat. We, we knew ways of communicating. We had to figure out the right way to do that. So I think it, it's funny that the idea to have teammates now spread out across the country, that would have been seemed heresy, I think, pre-COVID. Now, you, know, you get some of the best leaders wherever they are. Let's get together the right team to solve the problem it's actually one of the most exciting times in terms of you know, all those things to, to, to get going. So as a leader, how are you thinking about what that might mean for your organization in terms of you know, mixed work models, if you will, especially in healthcare? I get it. I would never have envisioned how successful this would have been if we weren't forced to see it. To me, this is actually an amazing time to be an employee too, because we can actually, where I think this could go is give the team member the choice to work where they feel the most productive, where they feel the happiest. They, there's, I think these hybrid models are going to be amazing. I miss the office culture and, and I'm an extrovert and I want to be there. I want to be around the people. And I just, I love bumping around. You know, I still want to have some of that. I want to have times when we're in the office, 
again, provided that we have good vaccines and everything is safe there. But the idea to have people maybe come in two days a week, one day a week, maybe they're on the other side of the country and they're flying in every two weeks. I would never have dreamed that this model works well. And yet I'm looking how well we're operating. We're doing better than we ever have before. I think that this flexibility being given to the workforce, I think it's, it's going to be a you know, good time to be in these companies. And hopefully more and more companies are going to embrace this flexibility to give people the work balance that they, that they want to have. Yeah, for sure. Last question. And thinking about, I guess, work and being an MBA. Many of our listeners now are probably super excited about Podometrics and everything you're doing. I'm curious, one, are you hiring? And two, if you are, where do you think MBAs could be most useful? It's funny, we were six people for, I feel like, years. <laughs> and for a while, can you make the product? And does the product work? And then can you get the clinical data? And now we get to the excited part. We have to build the company. It's a remarkable, as we continue to evolve the challenges of the company, now is the exciting part. We need to get the people in place to, get, to live our mission, to get to the, the systems into the homes of the people who need it. So we're absolutely hiring. What I would say is we actually, a part of our website, you go to see what gigs are up there. I think MBAs, as you think about the focus that you have, the aspects that you want to get into, whether it's marketing type of a role, as you're thinking about, think that you're probably early on, I usually see it as almost like a, a bathtub type curve. In the beginning, MBAs are critical to company formation. And MIT Sloan right there, they're, you're cranking out companies. It's the perfect build. In that early stage, often, you, know, you could probably steal them in. They can have some hats. And you're actually looking for generalists. Then as you start to come out, you're looking for people who have built, you know, had certain capacities. And we're starting to get that spot where MBAs are going to be a perfect addition. We're looking for really passionate people with a sense of mission and just capability, kind of throw them at problems. I think that's sort of the life cycle of a company, and we're excited to get into that base. And uh, for our listeners, we'll definitely link to the website so people can check out all the jobs and everything else that might be available to them. John, once again, thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate this interview and really excited to see where Podometrics goes in the years to come. The same. When we cannot do this virtually, and hopefully we'll get a chance to catch up over a beverage, I would not be upset by this. Uh, it's been a blast to chat with you, and uh, thank you very much for your time. 